Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we open God's Word to Acts chapter 15. And we will be considering together this morning verses 36 through chapter 16, verse 10. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 10. The 19th century Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield offered a type of test to see if you are a Calvinist. And I would like to share this with you. So without further ado, here's B.B. Warfield's You Might Be a Calvinist. If, he said, quote, the Calvinist is the man who sees God behind all phenomena and in all that occurs recognizes the hand of God working out his will. The Calvinist, in a word, is the man who sees God, who has caught sight of the ineffable vision and he will not let it fade for a moment from his eyes. He sees God in nature, God in history, God in grace. Everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping. Everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm, the throbbing of his mighty heart, end quote. If Warfield is correct, then without a doubt, I am a Calvinist. As I read and reread our passage for today, all I could see was God in his mighty providence. It is everywhere. And this is what we confessed through our singing just a few moments ago. God is unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Notice six critical truths in that hymn. First, God is unresting. I take that to mean God is always at work. Jesus himself said, my father is working until now and I am working. John 5, 17. Second, God is unhasting. I take that to mean God is never in a hurry. There is no anxiety in God. Third, God is silent as light. I take that to mean that God operates in our lives and in the world in ways that are often imperceptible to us. He has spoken to us in his written word, but he doesn't come up to us and audibly explains what he is about to do. In that sense, God is silent as light. Fourth, God is not wanting. I take that to mean that God is in need of nothing to accomplish his plans. He is God after all. Number five, God is not wasting. I take that to be a short paraphrase of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for our good. That is, no thing is ever wasted in God's economy. And finally, God rules in might. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. So, I must begin this morning with the obvious question. What is God's providence? Even though we have already talked to this to some extent, we need to be more specific. Our working definition will come from the historic catechisms of the past. Both the Baptist and the Presbyterian catechisms 
of the 17th century agree. And they ask, what are God's works of providence? Here is the historic answer. God's works of providence, which you have in your notes, are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, governing, and ordering all his creatures and all their actions to his own glory. As you can see, the catechisms identify three elements in providence. What are these? Preserving, governing, and ordering all things for the purpose of magnifying God's glory. Now, within, within these three, there is another component known as concurrence or confluence. The idea behind the term concurrence is that while human action is real and human action is accountable to God, nothing can override God's ultimate actions and he uses all human actions to bring about his good and perfect ends. A classic example of this, you know this example, you know where I'm going with this, right? Anybody? I can point the finger, I'll put you on the spot. Well, the classic example of Genesis, right? And Joseph's brothers, they meant, listen to this, they meant their actions for evil. God meant their actions for good. Same actions, different meanings, different purposes. Another explicit example of concurrence is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter says this, pay attention to the words, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Men crucified Jesus. They meant to kill him. But God meant to save the world through his death. One event, the death of Jesus, two different purposes. Behold, God's awesome providence. The passage in front of us this morning is full of God's creatures and their actions. You have Paul and Barnabas. John, Mark, and Silas, and Timothy, many Jews, Jews, Lydia, Luke, who now inserts himself in the narrative itself, a demon-possessed girl, a jailer, etc. Many, many people. As far as actions, what do we see? We see disagreement, separation, prayer, missions, circumcision, a vision, a voyage, a conversion to Christ, deliverance, imprisonment, etc., 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 there is much taking place in the passage in front of us, but all these creatures, along with all their actions, are under the providential hand of God. Therefore, as we enter into our passage this morning, we will hold on tightly to the power that undergirds all of it, the God who is unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, who rules in might. What do we see first? God's providence is manifested surprisingly, surprisingly through unexpected separations. God's providence is manifested surprisingly through unexpected separations. Verse, chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord. And see how they are. 
Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, in terms of geography, we find ourselves where we left off. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch of Syria. According to chapter 15, verse 35, this is just north of Jerusalem. They stayed there preaching the word after the controversy over circumcision was over. In terms of writing, some say it was around this time that Paul wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia, although this is a highly, highly debated issue. Many still think that 1 Thessalonians was Paul's first letter. In terms of chronology, we are now anywhere between 15 to 20 years into Paul's ministry as an apostle of Jesus. It has been that long since Christ converted Paul on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. So it's been a long time. Paul now has one missionary journey under his belt, and the sufferings that came from it only served to strengthen him. So Paul is now getting ready to begin his second missionary journey. He's eager to take the gospel to more and more places. But as you can see, it did not start in what we would call ideal circumstances. Paul and Barnabas, we read, were united in purpose. They wanted to keep spreading the gospel. They were not united, however, in their estimation of a particular individual, John Mark. You would remember in chapter 13, verse 13, John Mark basically abandoned the mission and left Paul and Barnabas to themselves while he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know the details. All we know is that this departure mid-trip did not sit well with the Apostle Paul. Thankfully, based on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, John Mark did eventually become useful to Paul, and the relationship apparently was restored to some extent. But in Acts chapter 15, Paul was not ready to trust Mark, the man who abandoned the mission at some point. In a real sense, this is not how you want to begin a mission trip. You want to be encouraged through unity, not discouraged through disunity. But Paul and Barnabas, this is the point, Paul and Barnabas simply could not agree on John Mark. The disagreement was intense, it was sharp, and they could not reconcile their differences. Thus, the Bible says, they separated. They separated. Now, before we judge them too harshly, let me point out, Three important lessons that we can glean from this sharp disagreement and this separation. First, in their disagreement, they kept the mission as of first importance. They kept the mission as of first importance. Remember that even though the dispute was about John Mark, their ultimate goal was to spread the gospel. So yes, the moment was intense. But their desires were proper. Barnabas and Paul both wanted the best for the mission. 
Therefore, let us be careful not to conclude that they were acting out of selfish ambition. They were not acting out of selfish ambition. The lesson is this. It is only natural that at times we will disagree, but we should always consider the motives behind our zeal. Second thing that I want you to consider, associations mattered to both Barnabas and Paul. Associations mattered to both Barnabas and Paul. Why? Because they were both convinced that to be in association with John Mark would either be helpful or detrimental to the cause of the gospel. Barnabas saw character traits in John Mark that he deemed useful to the cause of missions. Therefore, it mattered to Barnabas to remain in association with John Mark. Paul, on the other hand, saw character traits in John Mark that he deemed detrimental to the cause of missions. Therefore, it also mattered to Paul not to remain in association with John Mark. For better or for worse, both Barnabas and Paul had their reasons for either associating with John Mark or disassociating from John Mark. Likewise, we must understand that our associations do matter. Notice that even though both of these men entrusted themselves to God's care and sovereign plan, they did not do so flippantly. They cared about their associations for the sake of the gospel. This is even carried over into Paul's view of the church. Later on, as the Spirit of God inspired the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.9, he said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then in verse 11, Paul said, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of this and this and this, etc., etc. Even though the context of Acts 15 is different from 1 Corinthians and even though John Mark wasn't a man being accused of any moral failure, the point remains the same. Paul and Barnabas thought very highly of their associations, especially when it comes to associations related to the spread of the gospel, whether this is actual missions to the world or the testimony of the church to the world. We, too, must think deeply about the people, the churches, the denominations with which we link arms. This matters. These things are important. They, this is a relevant lesson for us from these faithful men. Here's a third lesson that we learn from this separation. The doctrine of divine providence teaches us that God is not in need of any perfections on our part or specific associations to move his eternal purposes to their final end. That was a very long lesson, wasn't it? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Let me repeat that. The doctrine of divine providence teaches us that God is not in need of any perfections on our part or specific associations to move his eternal purposes to their final end. Praise God. Praise God. Interestingly, notice what we read in verse 40 of chapter 15. It says that Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers to the grace of God. 
Interesting, the brothers in the church didn't stop and say, we can't function like this, right? Let's reconvene until we are all on the same page. Rather, they commended them to God. Why? Because God is unhasting. God was not nervous thinking, what am I going to do now? Remember concurrence? All human action, though truly human in nature, ultimately serves the purposes of God. Whether it is the evil of Joseph's brothers that resulted in the salvation of many people, or the evil of the Assyrians that resulted in the just judgment of God upon Israel, or the evil of men who resulted in the death of Jesus by which God saves the world, or even a sharp disagreement that resulted in division. Guess what? In God's providence, this sharp disagreement led to a division, yes, but a division of labor. A division of labor. Instead of two or three, the end result was that four missionaries were sent out. What happened as a consequence? More territory was covered. More people heard the gospel and more churches were strengthened. God's providence always, always always prevails, even over our shortcomings and failures. These men might not even have realized this at this moment, and yet it was all under God's providence. So let me encourage you, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let me encourage you. In the economy of God, nothing is ever wasted. Nothing is ever wasted. People come and people go. Ministers Come, ministers go. Associations are made. Others are undone. Some are planned. Others are unexpected. Some even painful. But know this, nothing, absolutely nothing in this world ever surprises our God for the simple reason and the glorious reason that God is always in charge. As the catechisms say, God preserves, God governs, and God orders all his creatures and all their actions. Things change, don't they? History remains in constant flux. The churches at Corinth, Ephesus, Rome eventually died out. Consider this, both Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually died, and their respective churches lost their influence that they once had in the world. But God, God's providence never, ever fails. His purposes are always unharmed. This teaches us, brothers and sisters, never to make too much of ourselves or of anyone else for that matter. Don't put your trust in men ultimately. If the brothers mentioned in verse 40 would have put their trust in this marvelous association between Barnabas and Paul to continue indefinitely, they would have lost heart. But they didn't. Instead, they simply commended them to the only one to whom they could, God and God alone. And what happened to the mission? The mission continued. The mission continued. Why? Because God's providence never fails. Neither is God's providence ever done. So let us continue to see what happens. As Paul and Silas begin their second journey, they are led back to 
Derby, and you need to pay attention to these cities, cities, Derby, and then Lystra. You might remember that Lystra was the town in which Paul and Barnabas were worshipped as gods. You remember that? And it is also the place where Paul was stoned nearly to death by the Jews who were persecuting him along with the crowds. So bad was the stoning that they really thought Paul was dead at Lystra. This being the case, the question is then, why would Paul return to the place where he was almost killed by evil men and worshipped by idolatrous crowds? The answer lies, as always, in the providence of God. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it even possible? Is it even possible to see God's providence in a brutal stoning and blatant idolatry? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we will return to these events in the coming weeks. So hold that thought until then. You might be surprised at how God's providence was manifested in Lystra, even through a stoning. It's incredible. In the meantime, and related to that, here's what happened next. God's providence is manifested beautifully, beautifully, through consequential encounters. And now we're moving into chapter 16. God's providence is manifested beautifully through consequential encounters. Let's read the first few verses in chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Oh, it just happens to be there, huh? What a coincidence. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So, in God's providence, a sharp disagreement resulted in a healthy division of labor, and more people heard the gospel as a consequence. Now, in chapter 16, we are seeing that in God's providence, Paul ended up in Lystra again. Why? Because God had ordained Consider this. This is the doctrine of God's providence. God had ordained before the foundation of the world that in this town of Lystra, at that precise time and under those specific circumstances, Paul would meet a man whom Paul himself would later and affectionately describe as my true child in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Undoubtedly, this encounter here in chapter 16 is highly, highly consequential for the life of the church ever since. But the providence of God, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, is God's preserving, governing, and ordering all his creatures and all their actions, correct? Amen? Amen. So yes, God's providence led Paul and Silas to and Silas to Lystra, where Timothy was. But the providence of God reaches all the way back to Timothy's birth. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you were in charge of the place, time, and the circumstances surrounding your birth. Please do not raise your hand. Okay. Good. Good. Consider Timothy's life in light of God's providence. He was a mix of Jewish and Gentile blood, which meant he could easily minister to both. Paul, 
Interestingly enough, the Bible says that he did have Timothy circumcised. Not because circumcision was necessary, but simply to make Timothy a more effective instrument of gospel communication to the Jews. At the end of the day, both Paul and Timothy saw the gospel, not circumcision, as of first importance. Circumcision was subordinate to the primacy of the gospel. So here's the lesson. If there are barriers that are possible for us to remove as we seek to bring men and women, boys and girls, to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we should. That's the point. This is why missionaries that go overseas, they have to learn a foreign language to remove that barrier in order to more effectively communicate the message of Jesus. It would be a very bizarre strategy to go to a foreign country and ask the citizens of that country to learn my language so I can tell them what I have to say. Rather, if I'm the one with the knowledge of Christ, I'm the one who needs to remove the barrier for the sake of their souls and for the sake of gospel clarity. And so here's a practical note. Here's a practical note. This is the reason why the elders at GCC, we desire to see a faithful biblical church for the many Spanish speakers around us. Right? It has direct application. It is not because any of us are craving separation Not at all. Rather, it is because we understand that the main priority of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and that the only way to do that effectively is by making the gospel understandable to their ears. Our main desire is not that people learn English, though that is a very good thing. I'm grateful for that myself. Our main desire is that they learn Christ. Christ If language is a barrier, then we must do whatever we can to remove that barrier. As we see in our passage, Timothy gladly submitted to Paul's instruction, and he did become circumcised, not for the sake of his salvation. In fact, Paul and Silas and Timothy went around Lystra. In fact, look at verse 4. What were they doing as they were taking, going around the cities? Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. What was the final decision of the Jerusalem council? Well, Paul said it very clearly. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not through circumcision. Peter said that explicitly in chapter 15, verse 11. And this is what they were delivering to the Jews as they went around preaching the gospel. They delivered the gospel along with its practical implications. Clearly then, Timothy was circumcised for the sake of the mission, not for the sake of his salvation. But then the question is this, why Timothy? Why Timothy? Well, this, is, this was all in God's plan, of course. Consider this, in his second letter to Timothy which was also his last letter, right before his martyrdom. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5. I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. And what did Lois his grandmother, and Eunice, Timothy's mother, do? What did they do with their faith? Well, Paul answers that in 2 Timothy 
and reminds Timothy of how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. Timothy's grandmother and mother made a deposit in his life from a very early age. What did they do? They deposited their faith through teaching, teaching Timothy the Old Testament scriptures. So please don't miss this. God's providence rules over all things. Amen. God works in history, his eternal decrees. Amen. But none of this removes our responsibility to instruct the next generation on the things of God. In other words, we should never, we must never use God's providence as an excuse for laziness or indifference concerning our responsibility regarding the youth and our young people. Timothy was blessed by God's providence to be born into a home where both his grandmother and mother never ceased to instruct him. It seems as though Timothy was mature from a very early age. So yes, God orchestrated everything about his life. God preserved Timothy. God governed Timothy. God ordered him in all his circumstances. Amen to that. But Lois and Eunice did what they were supposed to do. By the time Paul showed up in Timothy's life, he had been trained in the scriptures by his diligent mother and grandmother. Consequently, all of his life, his place and time of birth, the mother and grandmother he was given, the instruction he received, and this encounter with Paul resulted in Timothy becoming an exemplary pastor which from whom, from which countless pastors, countless missionaries, countless churches for generations and generations to come have learned what it means to be faithful in their calling. Consider this, apart from Timothy and his providential encounter with Paul in Lystra, we wouldn't have one of the most glorious and rich statements concerning the sufficiency of Scripture. We wouldn't have that. As Paul was nearing the end of his life, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Apart from Timothy and his encounter with Paul in Lystra, we wouldn't have one of the most searching one of the most convicting, one of the most sobering, and one of the most clear requirements set down for all preachers for all time. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. You see, apart from that encounter at Lystra, we wouldn't have any of that. All of Timothy's life, down to the last detail, was under God's providential hand. But isn't this true of our lives as well? It is true of all of us, for none of us were born by mistake 
or at the wrong place, or at the wrong time. David, David marveled at this knowledge. He marveled at this thought. In Psalm 139, verse 6, David said to God, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And then consequently, David exclaims in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! When was the last time that you marveled, that you took time to marvel at the providence of God over your life? And you said to God, how marvelous is to know that my life is in your hands. David could hardly contain the wonder of knowing that God had ordained all his days. That knowledge filled David with praise. Likewise, we see in the life of Timothy, in the life of Paul, the historical outworking of the days that God had formed and created for them both. This was no coincidence. This was God's providence. Have you thought of the wonder that this day, today, has been created by God for you and for me? Have you considered that you sitting there on that chair is God's plan for you today. This being the case, have you given thought to God's call to faith in his son this morning? Jesus the Lord died and he rose again to give us salvation. And God's call to you today is to trust him, to believe in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of your souls. This is why you're here this morning. God brought you here. And speaking of the Lord Jesus, where is God's providence moving? What is the final goal of God's providence? We will see that in the next few weeks. For now, consider what happened next. God's providence is manifested strangely through closed doors. Strangely through closed doors. Again, in chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, and they, meaning Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden. Did you, did you catch that word? Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Go to verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, Immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. According to uh, several commentators, the reason these men, Paul and Silas and Timothy, were forbidden from going uh, and preaching at certain places was because those specific regions were reserved for the ministry of the apostle Peter, who would later on uh, come and preach the gospel himself in those regions. And 
this seems to be actually the case if you read the greeting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It makes sense. But in any case, the point is this. The mission of the church is God's mission, first and foremost, not ours. God saves the world, not we. And God has determined the way in which this is done. The providence of God goes down to the very details. Peter had been appointed to minister the gospel in Asia and Bithynia at the right time through specific means. Therefore, Paul and Silas and Timothy had to submit themselves to the will of God. Now, we don't know how the Spirit informed the man about his will. He could have used natural causes, persecution, opposition, or maybe even direct communication or through prophetic utterance. But the bottom line is that the Spirit is the one in charge. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, He is God. He is God. For He too possesses a will, and He can determine the course of the gospel. He has authority. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is the third person. Remember, I always take advantage of these, these passages. God, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, for he possesses a will and makes absolute determinations. We must not think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force or an impersonal energy. Rather, he is the Spirit of Jesus, as he's called in chapter 16, verse 7. He is distinct from Jesus. Did you notice that? He's the spirit of Jesus. He is distinct from Jesus, yet one with Jesus. You see, then, brothers and sisters, reading the Bible apart from affirming the Trinity is pure madness. You can't do it. It is not possible. The spirit is God, and he applies the providence of God in accordance with the perfect and immutable unity of the Godhead. This much is very clear. But notice how Paul and his companions reached their decision. In chapter 16, verse 10, it says that they concluded. They concluded that God had sent them to Macedonia. In other words, they took what the spirit for. Uh, had forbidden them to do, along with Paul's dream, they put them together, reflected upon these things, and assuredly gathered, concluded that God had called them to Macedonia. As they rested in God's unbreakable providence, they exercised discernment. As they rested in God's unbreakable promise, uh, providence, they ex exercised discernment. I still remember going through the interview process here at GCC to become one of their staff members. This is something that started in the winter of 2016 and ended in the spring of 2017. Interestingly enough, we are a Reformed church. We believe in the providence of God. We believe in His sovereignty, and yet we have interview processes here. But... We are a Reformed church, so the question is, well, do we believe in divine providence, right? Well, we do. You see, the interview process is not a denial of God's providence. We go through the interview process because as we affirm and as we submit ourselves to God's ultimate providence, we don't neglect our call to exercise the powers of our discernment. 
In other words, providence is no justification for apathy or negligence. To put it differently, God's providence and due diligence are not mutually exclusive. God is always working out his plans to perfection, and yet he has called us to discern and pray without ceasing. Isn't that interesting? No? Maybe it's not interesting. I I find that interesting. (laughs) Just last week, I was uh, speaking with uh, some people about what it means to be reformed, what it means to be reformed. And I said something like this. I said, to be reformed, in a nutshell, is to affirm and believe both. Okay, two things, both. That God works all things. How many things? All things. That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the first thing you affirm. And second, that I must pray without ceasing. Then you take both statements, you put them together, and you say a hearty amen. Amen. That's what it means to be reformed. So we see Paul and Silas and Timothy reaching a conclusion, exercising discernment, even as they submitted themselves to God's ultimate and final providence. Being reformed, therefore, does not grant us the right to give ourselves over to fatalism or pessimism. Yes, some doors are closed, other doors are open. But in all things, we pray, we discern that which is good, we act accordingly, and we rest upon God. That is the passage for us this morning. Now, as we bring this to a close, let me ask again, where is all this providential work of God leading us to? What is the end goal of all of it? Of all of it. How is God working all his eternal plans through the ups and downs of life and history, and where are we headed? The answer is truly, truly glorious. Truly glorious. But we'll save it for next time. So let me finish by preparing us for what is to come in the weeks ahead. This was going to be one sermon, and it's probably going to end up being three. We'll see. So let me finish, prepare ourselves for what is coming. We have considered God's providential or God's providence manifested through unplanned separations, consequential encounters, and even through closed doors. We still have two more manifestations of divine providence left to consider. So the remaining questions are as follows. What about God's providence in relation to spiritual warfare? What about God's providence in relation to spiritual warfare? And finally, what about God's providence in relation to trials and tribulations? What about God's providence in relation to trials and tribulations? We have much yet to learn from our passage. And so I hope that you will be here next week as God speaks to us yet again from his holy word. And we seek to answer those questions together. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your providence. We thank you that you are the one who preserves, 
governs, who orders all your creatures and all their actions. And in light of this, we know, Father, that sometimes life doesn't make much sense. And yet you are the one who is never hasting, nor wanting, nor wasting. You are the one who rules in might. So help us, Lord, to consider your providence. That at the end of the day, and at the end of all days, when all is said and done, when history comes to an end, your providence will have accomplished everything to perfection. And the Lord Jesus will receive, will receive all that has been promised to him. And the church will stand one day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Because we know, we are convinced that all things do work together for our good. And this is because of your providence. So we rest upon this truth. We bring our joys and our sorrows and everything else in life to you. And we entrust ourselves to your providence. And it is in Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.